belong, become, believe. You're listening to Grace Church of Northwest Arkansas podcast. The message for October 31st, 2021 is called The Plot Twist from Romans 1 to 2. The teacher is Tim Holland and the location is Vesper Point, Mount Sequoia in Fayetteville, Arkansas. Okay, well, again, good morning. Happy Halloween. Never growing up did I think I would ever say that at church. <laughs> All right. Um, so today does bring up a lot of memories. I know not everybody grew up uh, the same way that I did. Just go like this. Um, but some of you may be able to relate to all of it and some in part. So, um, yeah, today brings up a lot of memories for me. Like uh, the church and family I grew up in, we didn't really celebrate Halloween um, because it was a time of year more so to talk about Satanism and witchcraft and demons coming out of jack-o'-lanterns, but only if you lit the candle because somehow that like summoned them. Um, How bobbing for apples was a pagan practice instead of just dunking your head in a spit-filled water vat to bite it gross mealy apples. Um, Yeah, so instead we separated ourselves from the pagan holiday of Halloween. We didn't carve our pumpkins. We painted them. And instead of trick-or-treating, we got our candy at the church's Halloween alternative night. Anybody have one of those? Okay. Thank you. <laughs> um, and which, But the Halloween alternative night was also on October 31st. So just in case we wanted to like double dip into the occult, uh, it wasn't an option. The only caveat was that you couldn't dress up as a ghost a witch or a devil, unless it was like the biblical one. I'm thinking that may have been acceptable. Um, But looking back, it feels like this was just yet another missed opportunity to get to know our neighbors and just to be normal kids in the community. Um, Tonight, our family will be trick-or-treating, but on Friday, uh, we had our mermaid and hot dog uh, over at Laura's parents' house for a cousin Halloween party. And they dress up in their costumes. All the cousins did. They had a scavenger hunt. The wind's blowing my notes here. They had a scavenger hunt. Uh, they grabbed goodie bags and had lots of snacks. Ate candy before we even started. Um, and then there were a lot of appetizers also, including a tray of deviled eggs that uh, had sliced up all sliced up olives on the top that were made to look like spiders perched up on top of the eggs. We're gonna thumbs down for those deviled eggs. Um, it kind of, and like eating them, I kind of had like all five of them, I think. (laughs) Um, I kind of had this like flashback back to church potlucks growing up again, probably nobody will relate, but, um, where everything was labeled, you know, you had like three bean, whatever it was Pacific Northwest. So there's always like teriyaki or salmon or rice. And, um, and then also we had angeled eggs because they weren't called deviled eggs. They were angeled eggs. Um, this was essentially a way to redeem the yuck and the yum as if like squishy cold eggs mixed with, uh, that already smelled like sulfur than mixed with mustard weren't already, um, somehow deviled. Um, it was appropriate name, not angel devil, but, um, looking back, we had a tendency to take like arbitrary things to an unhealthy extreme. And the, the Halloween alternative party was so restrictive that it disincluded kids from the community who would have enjoyed a second opportunity to wear their Halloween costumes, play games, and get more candy. 
But instead, we had a lesser version of the real thing, and that's a real problem in the church. We only know our own experience, but a replica of regular culture separates us, often keeping our experience intentionally limited. Like I had, um, for the first seven years of our marriage, I had celiac disease. Um, so I thought <laughs> it was a poor diagnosis. Um, and, you know, so we like tried recipes and different things and everything that promised to be as good as the real deal never was like bread. It was good, like within that world. And I know a lot of people actually have celiac disease, but, um, within that world, like it was good for what it was, but, um, it was never quite the real thing. So, uh, that experience as well as, so the experience of like a replica of culture, a replica of something real that other people experience as well as shared, um, cultural values and social norms. They helped us understand or help us understand the world around us. And they also inform how we interpret and understand scripture. So it's no surprise to me that the kid that I was who ate angel eggs dressed up as a Bible for Halloween. Um, I was really into salty at the time also when I did that costume. Um, and pledged to his mother at 14 years old that he would never let alcohol touch his lips. Um, she responded by saying, well, you don't want to limit yourself. I may have shared that before. That's a different story. Um, but that, that's who I was. Um, so it's no surprise that I developed a more limited and prescriptive read of scripture. So for the past two months, we've been going through a series called reading, reading Romans backwards. And it's allowed us to approach. I'm so sorry, guys. It's allowed us to approach um, Romans from a different perspective and context that isn't subject to the all too common conception that standardizes Paul's doctrine of salvation. Sweet. Thank you. So it, it doesn't standardize Paul's teaching to this like very common standardized standard again um, message that um, it's just salvation and it removes the message later on that there's a social context. So like it limits the reading of scripture, reading it backwards has really opened up my eyes. Um, the lead up in chapters one and two of Romans are often used to manipulate a message that is actually about unity, about breaking down structures of power and privilege, about lived theology that forms us into being more like Christ. And being like Christ is not to be a spiritual image, a spiritual splitting image of the guy. Um, it's more in the words of Leonard Sweet, it describes the whole message of Jesus' life was not, let me show you how to be more spiritual. Rather, it was, let me show you how to be authentically human. He says again, don't be an imitator. Let Jesus be himself in you, making you into your true self. This is what it is to be in the image of Christ. And for me, the reason this reading Romans backwards approach has been so special is because historically, the way I've interpreted the opening of this book distracted me from the actual content that follows. Reading it backwards, now that we're at the beginning, allows us to better understand the lead-in. Like epidemiologists searching for, for patient zero, we're looking back at where it all started in order to understand why and how. Without this backwards contextualization, so much of it can get lost in legalism, Christian pop culture, and bumper sticker theology. So if I were to rewind the clock by 10 or 20 years, my read of this intro to Romans and Paul's framing up of the entire letter um, happened in two parts. So part one was Romans 1.16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is God's power for salvation to everyone who believes. So I'm going to sing a little here. Do you guys remember this song? <laughs> 
No way we are not ashamed of the gospel of his name. Yeah, generous. Holy hands are lifted high to the name of Jesus Christ. Who sang it? Yeah, Carmen. You guys remember Carmen. Ah, all right. Um, so it was Carmen's song, and it reminded us that we have nothing to be ashamed about for being a Christian. When taken to an extreme, this is a posture that quickly turns into pride and arrogance. And sometimes, for some people, even a license to act like a turd under the banner of Jesus, and then cry persecution when people try holding you accountable. Um, and that's kind of like when I made my entire lunch table in junior high pray before their meal. Um, they didn't necessarily want to, but just in case they pushed back, I was ready to cry foul, play the persecuted Christian, and find another table. Um, again, they didn't actually have, they just thought I was weird, and it made making friends outside of youth group kind of hard. So part one, in my understanding of how Paul was framing up this book, was that even when we are persecuted because of Christ, we have nothing to be ashamed of because we are right. Might seem like an extreme, but it was also influenced by a similar limited reading of other passages. It was the separatist angle that really allowed me to dig into this next part. So part two, my understanding of how this framed up. Um, and hang on, this is this is a longer passage, but it's going somewhere. So Romans 1, 24 through 32 reads, Therefore, God gave them over in the, in the desires of their hearts to impurity, to dishonor their bodies among themselves. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped this and served the creation rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them over to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged the natural sexual relations for unnatural ones, and likewise the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed in their passions for one another. Men committed shameless acts with men and received in themselves the due penalty of their error. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do what should not be done. They're filled with every kind of unrighteousness, wickedness, covetousness, malice. They're ripe with envy, murder, strife, deceit, hostility. They're gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, contrivers of all sorts of evil. We're still going. Disobedient to parents, senseless, covenant breakers, heartless, ruthless. Although they fully know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but also approve of those who practice them. Got it. <laughs> We'd read this passage and call it good. Don't be ashamed of the gospel, and outsiders are sinners. That's how it was framed up for me. And outsiders being sinners also, and this is harder to admit, um, it also included cultural Christians and people from churches that didn't really follow Jesus like we did because they approved of all those things. This was the lens through which I saw Romans, but the joke was on me. I missed the plot twist because I stopped reading at the end of chapter one. Um, plot twists do, they disrupt things in a story, particularly details and outcomes that the audience thinks they've already figured out, which in my context growing up, we had totally figured out what Paul, where Paul was going in Romans. Plot twists are also highly effective in stand-up comedy. So there it comes in three parts. Plot twist describes a need or a problem in stand-up, right? Need or problem. Then uh, it gets people on board with something relatable that they can connect to. And then they turn it on its head and knock everybody off balance. So for example, in one of Steve Martin's earlier bits, he talked about giving his cat a bath. So I'm just going to read the quote. I'm trying not to be long, but um, I gave my cat a bath the other day. You know, I'd always heard you weren't supposed to give cats baths. 
But my cat came home and he was really dirty. And I decided to give him a bath and it was great. If you have a cat, don't worry about it. They love it. He sat there. He enjoyed it. It was fun for me, you know, and um, the fur would stick to my tongue. But other than that, you know, it was great. <laughs> the punchline in Romans 1 and 2 may have been lost on me for a lot of years, but it was not lost on the original hearers. When Phoebe opened up this letter and read it to the church all over Rome, the setup was like this. One, the gospel frees us from shame because we can be righteous by virtue of our belief. Two, so many sinful people are out there right now and they need this. Their souls need this because God's wrath is coming for them. Three, also God's wrath is coming for you. And here's why. Plot twist. But why do we so often stop at point two with the outward facing finger pointing? One, we don't want to look at ourselves. That part's obvious. But also somebody put a chapter marker where one was never meant to be. The punchline plot twist is the opening of chapter two. They're broken up by a chapter break and section heading, neither of which were actually there for Paul or Phoebe or anybody who heard it. Read a chapter of the Bible a day and you miss it. Study verse by verse, you miss it. Except a selective literal interpretation of scripture, yeah, you're missing it. <laughs> the content of the Bible is set apart. It is holy and special. Chapters, verses, headers, and lexical gaps are imperfections that are intentionally, stripped, uh, intentionally stitched into scripture. The heart of this is good. Their intent is to help us better understand and navigate the text, but they also serve as unintentional teaching. They're in addition to what was originally there. They're GMOs, gospel-modifying organizational structures that dilute and distract. In the words of Gracie Allen, never place a period where God meant to place a comma. Scripture is holy, but its formatting and organizational structure leaves us wanting. And there's nothing holy about those GMOs. And we don't need to pretend that there is. So let's try this again without the break in the chapters, the legalism and angeled eggs. And this time with the plot twist included. So part one, the neater problem. I am not ashamed of the gospel. So Romans 1, 16 through 17 reads, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is God's power for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. For the righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel from faith to faith. Just as it is written, the righteous by faith will live. For so many, the gospel, or the term sharing the gospel, is about God's plan for salvation. Uh, my friend Daryl Harvey uh, is quick to remind people that it's not about that. The gospel is the story of creation fall, redemption, and restoration. We can't make the gospel about something that is not and sing about how proud we are that we've got this thing that makes us special over others. It's not a salvific step-by-step. -step. That's what cults offer. Jesus does not. Instead, Romans 1 and 2, in Romans 1 and 2, Paul is talking about how he's excited to see these people he has heard so much about so that he can share with them and see in them the fruit of the story of creation, fall, redemption, and restoration, and how it has been revealed in Christ for both the Jews and the Romans, who couldn't be more different, more at odds, or more misaligned outside of a shared belief in the gospel with Jesus as Redeemer. Paul is embracing this mashed up merging of worlds because it is only in Christ that things like this happen. This is the power of the gospel. The need or problem that Paul and Phoebe put out there in Romans 1, 16 through 17, was about shame. 
Another translation reads verse 16 as, I do not have shame from the gospel. Then verse 17, God's righteousness is revealed in the gospel and the righteous by faith will live. Better translated, those who are righteous by virtue of faith will live. It doesn't just cover the shame like the law did from the moment God first sacrificed living things to cover the shame of Adam and Eve. It removes shame. There's nothing we can do to earn righteousness. And in Christ, redemption has come. Framed up like this, Paul isn't saying, hey, y'all, I'm not embarrassed by Jesus, and here's the Romans road. He's literally stating, I do not have shame. And he owns this throughout his writing across the New Testament by openly sharing about his shortcomings. Redemption in Christ frees us from shame. And then part two, relatable connection. So all those sinful people. In Romans 1, 29 through 32, again, I'm going to read this. It's a less of the, the full version from before, but um, I think it could use a reframe. So they are filled with every kind of unrighteousness, wickedness, covetousness, and malice. They are rife with envy, murder, strife, deceit, hostility. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, contrivers of all sorts of evil, disobedient to parents, senseless, covenant breakers, heartless, ruthless. Although they fully know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but also approve of those who practice them. So I already covered this, but here you can imagine the original hearers sitting there wanting to hear even more about those people. It's like when you have a problem in your relationship and talk with your partner about your friend's problems and theirs, because their problems are a little bigger. Um, or really, it's just easier to talk about somebody else. Uh, then comes plot, part three, which is the plot twist. All those sinful people means you. Romans 2, 1 through 4. Therefore, you are without excuse, whoever you are. When you judge someone else, for on whatever grounds you judge another, you condemn yourself. Because you who judge practice the same things. Now we know that God's judgment is in accordance with truth against those who practice such things. And do you think, whoever you are, when you judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape God's judgment? Or do you have contempt for the wealth of his kindness, forbearance, and patience, and yet do not know that God's kindness leads you to repentance? Plot twist. Paul and Phoebe drew them in, then turned the whole thing on its head. We got some wind issues here. But going back to part one, there's no shame, no individual effort to make oneself clean because righteousness comes from belief, full stop. So even though they turned it on its head, it was still framed up by the fact that there's no shame. It disarmed them. Um, they may have been a little shocked, but they were able to go back to the place like redemption has come. Our shame is taken away. It's not just covered. So whether outsider or insider, we are in equal need of grace and we have equal access to righteousness by faith in Christ Jesus. Um, a few weeks ago when I spoke about Christiformity, I shared about the schism between the Jewish and non-Jewish believers in Rome and how the groups were referred to as weak and strong in equally derogatory ways. Opening up the letter um, by evening the playing field between outsider and insider set up the case later made for the weak and strong to accept one another as siblings in Christ. In his reading Romans backwards commentary, Scott McKnight frames up Romans like this. 
Romans is about privilege and power. Paul's gospel deconstructs power and privilege. Paul's lived theology turns power upside down and denies privilege. That's how the letter opens. It gets everybody on board and throws them off balance to have a real conversation. McKnight goes on to say that Paul's lived theology is about peace in the empire. And it is a radical alternative to Rome's famous Pax Romana. And for uh, those high schools a long time ago for me, um, Pax Romana was an imperial peace that spanned 200 years. It started with Caesar Augustus and ended all the way through uh, Marcus Aurelius. Little historical side note, uh, the term Pax Romana was coined, uh, it means Roman peace, it was coined during the uh, reign of Emperor Augustus, uh, during that period, a few years after Octavian defeated Mark Antony and Cleopatra, and during the War of Actium, which was Rome's, I'm going to finish before I totally glaze over, um, before <laughs> Rome's final civil war. Um, so, you know, Mark Antony and Cleopatra, like the stories, um, you got Shakespeare, Elizabeth Taylor, uh, Charlton Heston, those guys. Uh, Pax Romana was effective propaganda because it prevented civil war and made Romans believe they had something that the world did not. And they offered that peace to the world as they conquered and colonized it. Pax Romana wasn't really peace. It was control and subjugation. It was safety and stability for Rome and its citizens, but offered little for those outside its borders. So what is the alternative? that Paul was proposing. Relinquishment of control over others and liberation. Cessation of judgment, a turn toward introspection, and freedom from shame. So our family loves the show Bluey. Um, if you haven't, you guys know Bluey? That's a Disney show. Um, if you haven't seen it, it's awesome. Um, it's not just for kids or parents. It's a universally funny and surprisingly moving animated show. Uh, about a family of Australian healers. Um, and I don't mean like shaman. It's like the dog, the healers. Blue Mewen, Red Mewen. <laughs> um, and it teaches kids how to name and work out big feelings and reminds the rest of us that we need to as well. Highly recommend. But in one episode, Bluey and her sister Bingo cover themselves in blanket shawls to play grannies. We're going to be uh, going to the market to buy cans of baked beans. After Bingo trips on a can of beans and falls on the floor, she pops up drops her blanket shawl, and starts flossing. Who knows how to floss? I'm being told I need. So I've been practicing. So it's a little like, like this. Right? So it's like... All right. That's, that's, that's enough. Yeah, she, she's going to ignore me for a week or two. Um, so in response to this, her big sister yells, so Bluey yells, Bingo, you have to play properly. You can only do what grannies do. Grannies don't floss. Bluey is being um, dogmatic about the seemingly well-known fact that grannies cannot floss, which really upsets Bingo because all she wants to do is be a granny who can floss. So Bluey takes Bingo to their mom to set her straight and confirm that grannies can't floss. Not sure how to answer. Her mom says... I'm like giving a lead in with not enough clues. Um, go ask your father. <laughs> uh, who also admits that he doesn't know. So the girls go to their room. They call up their grandmother on the, the video, like on, do a video call with the grandmother. And to Bluey's delight, her grandmother has no idea how to floss. 
which causes Bingo to become upset and walk away. Louie's excited to be right, but is confused by Bingo's response. So she goes back to her mom and asks why Bingo won't play with her. Mom, I said grannies can't floss, but Bingo said they can. But I was right. We rang Nana and she couldn't floss. But Bingo won't play with me. I don't understand. In her response, her mom says, Well, love, you need to ask yourself a question. Do you want to be right? Or do you want Bingo to keep playing? So Bluey starts running away, or walking away, then runs back quickly and asks, Can't I have both? Unfortunately, a lot of us hold this attitude of wanting it all. We want to be right, and we want others to keep playing with us. We want to offer compassion and love, but we also want to do it in our, on our terms, without the challenge of interchange or shift in outer posture. The church often sits in judgment, trying to befriend a world that we offend with our obsessive need to be right, all the while wondering why they won't accept the truth of their wrongness. This is what Bluey didn't get about grannies. She thought if only she could prove to her sister Bingo that she was wrong, then Bingo would give up the fight and stop flossing so they could play properly, which meant that they would play according to the parameters Bluey had set, which had no consideration for the uniqueness her sister brought to play. At too many churches, we say all are welcome, but once people step in, they're often met with a clipboard to assess their fitness for belonging and to control and limit access. I once heard about um, somebody at a friend's church who was told that she couldn't be part of the coffee ministry uh, because she was living with her boyfriend and they wouldn't let her help make that delicious deviled church coffee or set out the powdered creamer because she was in sin. She was just trying to get involved to find her place. At the end of the Bluey episode, Bluey wants to make it right with Bingo. So she calls her granny back and teaches her how to floss. It's pretty awesome. Then she brings the screen to Bingo to show her that she had been wrong. Even if grannies can't floss, they can learn how. We've got to let go of control and our need to be right to acknowledge, there's Alex, to acknowledge that people can adapt and learn just like we have. And so we're left with the same question that Bluey was. Do we want to be right or do we want to keep playing together? So, yes, exactly. <laughs> So we're gonna go into a time of communion now. We uh, thanks for coming up. Um, yeah. So go ahead. Alex is gonna play a song. We'll sing and then I'll come back up and I'll do it right now. Okay. All right. So on the night he was betrayed, Jesus um, sat with his disciples. They had a meal. They broke bread. And um, Jesus passed the bread around and said, this is my body. Whenever you eat, do this in remembrance of me. And they passed the cup, drank. And he said, this is my blood. Whenever you do this, do this in remembrance of me. So as you take communion, just remember there's no shame that Jesus, like the whole thing was about redemption. That we don't have to cover our shame. It's just wiped clean, wiped away. Um, can't boil it down to a song lyric about being washed in the blood um, because that doesn't cover there's, there's so much more more to it um, it's a lot bigger but there's no shame in the gospel it's not meant to bring shame so let's just reflect on that today as we take communion 
um, our family with our kids, we like to say, thank you, Jesus. And I love you, Jesus, as we take the bread and cup. So whatever works for y'all. Thank you for listening to Grace Church of Northwest Arkansas podcast. You can find more about us online at gracechurchnwa.org. Grace and peace.